0: Welcome to Quiet the Noise with Amy and Evelyn, a podcast whose mission is to educate and empower the community, make informed, unbiased decisions, and shift your perspective. World-renowned lecturers and educators, also referred to as the Gutman Sisters, Amy and Evelyn are known for evidence-based, trailblazing techniques in helping children and families thrive. Occupational therapists specializing in neurodevelopment their goal is to encourage, enlighten, and empower. Please join your hosts, Amy and Evelyn Gutman.
1: Welcome, everyone. This is Amy yes. and Evelyn from Quiet the Noise. We wanted to thank everyone for joining us today um, on our podcast on a very exciting topic called sensor integration. But before we get started on that, we just wanted to take this opportunity and thank each and every one of you who wrote in and send us text messages and emails. It really meant a lot getting that feedback. We really, really appreciate you guys and are really interested in getting to know what you want, and we hope you'll get some more information from us. And please continue telling us what you want to learn. With that in mind, let's get started. Okay, so tonight's topic that we're going to be talking about is going to be sensory integration. And I think the first thing that we should do is even though we talk a lot about, oh, that kid is sensory or he has sensory integration issues, sometimes I ask parents, do you really know what the term means? And they're like, I hear it, but not so much. So why don't we define it? Right, because I think when you know, I say, oh, that sounds sensory, most people are thinking about the child or the adult who's sensitive to touch or textures or needs to touch everything. Constantly moving. Yeah, right. that's a sensory issue. Right. And they'd be right, but there's <laughs> a lot more. A hundred percent. So why don't we define it? So sensory integration basically refers to the process where we're constantly taking information in from our environment and we have to be able to decide what's important, what do we need to pay attention, and what can we filter out and what's not important so that we can make an appropriate response. And we're doing this constantly all the time and we're using our eight different senses to make those decisions. And I know many of us really only know about the five senses, but we're going to talk about three more senses that impact our lives tremendously. And when we're dealing with children, especially in early childhood, those senses are created and developed, possibly in utero, that actually can affect their emotions, their anxieties, their regulations. So we're definitely going to get into those senses as well. Yes, yeah, something else I want to mention is when we talk about sensory integration, each of these senses has to be functioning and doing really well on their own in order for them to integrate and process information properly, because it's a little bit like each sense is, a, is um, a soldier in the army, and the army is each sense working together. They all have to work harmoniously in order to have the right output. It's a little bit like if you think about someone who unfortunately can't see, they're going to, that sense may be a little weak, so they're going to use maybe their sense of hearing a little bit more to make them have an appropriate response. So when you think about these systems, we're going to be isolating it tonight and talk about each one individually, but remember that they all have to work really, really well together, and sometimes one system is going to compensate for another one because that system may not be working as efficiently or as well as it should. And that's really what happens when we want to survive. You know, like we, we try to make do with what we have and what's strong, and we compensate in order to just make it through the day and make it through our lives, which is why if you think about someone who has sensory processing issues or they have a diagnosis of SPD, a sensory processing disorder, those children and those adults, like what you said, they are working really hard every single moment in order to function as best as they can, and while they may have some systems that are not working so well. And I do want to mention that not... Everyone can have a little bit of a sensory integration issue. It's not like I have sensory issues probably. I know when I go to sleep, I need to have a heavy blanket in order order to fall asleep. I know, you know what I'm saying, like you don't like the the wool sweaters. You like more the cashmere. Yeah, I'm a very expensive (laughs) sensory integration issue. But the point of um, working or treating sensory integration issues is you only start doing that when it starts affecting the functioning of your everyday life, when it's taking too much of a toll Children, when it's affecting the quality of their life, when it's affecting educational um, goals that they need to meet, and That's I want social skills. Right, and I want to share that. You know, tonight we're going to very quickly go through these systems because we've got a lot of questions about this, but we are going to go in depth in some of them that actually affect anxiety and emotions. Because I don't know that the knowledge is so apparent. Most of us know about the five basic senses, but those three other senses our internal senses within our body that when information is not getting received correctly can actually affect our quality of life. And usually there are individuals who are very smart, very capable to the world. They seem highly functioning, but internally they're suffering because those systems are not working efficiently. And again, it's not an isolation. There are other parts of our brain and our body that affect us, like our reflexes, our neurochemical composition, how are those neurotransmitters working, how much dopamine, how much epinephrine's out there. But we're just gonna talk about one part tonight, and if we need to do more on other areas, we will. 100%, so let's try to fade out those other areas that you discussed, and let's try to delve into what are the different senses, what their function are, are, and then also what symptoms may you see in a child. So the first one we're gonna talk about is going to be the visual system, which is an external sense. You basically have your eyes. And that's basically what is it that your eyes are seeing? Are you seeing clearly? And the first thing that we actually will tell someone is we're talking about visual acuity, being able to see what you're looking at. And if God forbid someone has an issue, the first thing we would tell a parent is go check out that child by the ophthalmologist. The reason being that after you are going to be looking at what you're seeing, What's even a step above that is what is it that you're seeing and how does the brain process the image in order for you to make sense of what it is you're seeing, which is called visual processing skills, And that's a little bit of a higher level skill. And it's it's like that age-old question when the little ones are talking about colors and we're trying to explain what blue looks like. It's very hard to kind of explain what the color is. You know, what one person perceives as blue may be different than what another person perceives as blue, but that's where that visual perception comes hundred percent. It's a little bit of a higher level skill that starts developing a little bit later in a child. It happens to be the vision is the most primitive sense. A baby doesn't see when they're born, so that's why we're still looking at what are they seeing and how do they start processing that information. How does now, it affect kids? Okay, so the basic symptoms that you're going to have a parent tell you is, oh, my child is having a hard time reading. They may have a hard time seeing the blackboard. You may even get some more specific symptoms where kids are going to be telling you that they see blurry or double. Some kids may even say that they're seeing the uh, letters move on the page. It also something I want to point out is it's important to also ask children, are you seeing double, are you seeing blurry, because a lot of children – They are seeing that way from the get-go, from the beginning, and we're not even aware that they're not seeing the images the way that they should. So that would be a little bit basic. Another thing that you may hear is my child lacks eye contact. They're not looking at me when I'm speaking to them. When they're sitting in the classroom, they're not looking at the teacher. They seem to be distracted, spacey. Some of these children may have a diagnosis of autism, right. and some of these children may be typically developing children come off as shy or not being able to um, ever direct their attention to someone when they're speaking by looking them directly in the eye. The interesting thing about eye contact is we think of it as a visual issue, and it happens to be that many times it is symptomatic of another system that's not doing well or something else. For example, for some kids, the environment may be too overly visually stimulating, so It may be too much for them, the things that are on the blackboard, maybe even something that someone is wearing. So that really is a little bit more directly affected to that vision of what am I seeing. But for a lot of children, they may be more hypervigilant. What does that mean? They are paying attention to things that are more outside in the environment than what's in front of them. Think about, we call like children who are doing that stimulus bound and a lot of children who are on the spectrum or who are autistic are stimulus down, which means that they're attracted to things in the periphery and not have a hard time focusing on what's in front of them. Or even with a typical child in the classroom, think about all those kindergarten classrooms where they have those stimulating posters and colors. And, you know, it's always encouraged in the primary years to have lots of visuals in the classroom. Sometimes when we consult in schools, we actually tell the teachers to put those stimulus Simulatory um, posters in the back of the classroom, so children don 't get distracted from that because they might be in tune to it more than others would and also we 're going to talk about it later, but some children who are not looking may have a hard time actually listening it 's not a vision, a visual issue; it could be something with the auditory system which we 're going to talk about a little bit later so basically. These are some of the things that may be symptoms of issues with the visual system, but as you see, sometimes it's strictly just vision, but sometimes there's another system that's in play or that's a little bit um, not functioning properly that's going to cause a visual symptom. Okay, now what about that next system? Okay, so the next very, system is the vestibular very, system. right? Explain, explain why, we're, why we're going in this order. So I have this, um, well, the vestibular and the visual system are married to each other. They run along the same track. Now let me explain first what the vestibular system is. The vestibular system is one of those internal systems that you spoke about. That If you think about it, there really is no sense for being able to balance yourself, um, and you only know when something is wrong with this system, when you're feeling a symptom of it. Let me just, to, just, to let go me just back describe back. what it is. The yes. vestibular system yes. tells us where we are, our relationship to gravity, and whether we're moving and whether we're not. So like our balance. Right.
0: That's, That's really what it's, about. it's
1: our balance. So if, if you are not feeling good with the system, then you're not going to have very, very good balance. The interesting thing about the system is it starts developing at around two months in utero, and it is very largely dependent upon its mother's movements which is why, if you think about it, the baby doesn't kick during the day. A lot for most um, mothers, they're moving. The minute you go to bed and you're getting off your feet and you're exactly. relaxing, all of a sudden you want to go to sleep because your, your feet are hurting you, you're not doing so well. That's all of a sudden starts. the kick starts coming because the baby's telling you, hey, mommy, I don't understand what just happened. You stopped moving. Your movement is helping me exercise this system, and I want you to get going again which is why sometimes not, you're not going to necessarily get, I want to put that caveat out there, you're not going to def- get an issue, but mothers who are on bed rest a lot or mothers who are carrying twins, a lot of times those children don't get that vestibular stimulation, so that system may be a little bit underdeveloped. And something that we, you know, it's, like I said, not, everyone, not every baby that's born is going to have that issue, but if you know that this is so important, and we would recommend that mothers be a little more proactive after the baby is born to give that baby a little bit more vestibular stimulation. You may want to rock the baby a little bit more. You may want to move them in different positions, but not to get too much in detail because it's a limited time, but at the same time, you also don't want to give too much of that vestibular movement to a child when they don't need it anymore because we don't want our children to need to be rocked to sleep when they're older, and we don't want them to need that swing after a certain point. In fact, one of the recommendations that have been placed is not to try and have your child not be in a swing after three months of age in order to get regulated, no problem in putting them there for the park, but you don't want them to be in their swing to fall asleep. So let's, let's yeah, talk ahead. a little bit about what you may see um, some of the kids presenting with. So the first thing you mentioned yeah, see, what do they look like? The most basic thing is they're going to be kids, children who are going to have issues with balance. And it may start with them maybe not... They may reach their milestones but maybe the quality of how they're going to reach their milestones may not be the way it's supposed to be. These are the children that are going to fall a little bit more. They're going to be clumsy. They're going to have a hard time maybe going up and down stairs, jumping. They're going to present with what we call gravitational insecurity. They may, some kids. What that means is they're going to be afraid of movement. And what's interesting with this system is you're going to have some children who are going to be fearful of movement, so they're not gonna wanna move, they're gonna be frightened of going in the swing, they may not like to go into a car, and they may be the kids who don't like being on their stomach on their back because it's so hard for them to move because every movement that a child makes from the time that they're put on the floor is starting to work on that system. These may be the, cho- the kids who are afraid of heights, or the toddler or the kindergarten kid in kindergarten who in recess time stands in the back of the room or in the back of the playground and doesn't want to engage because sometimes the actual sight of other people moving causes them to have a physiological response. And also, these children sometimes present as if they are seeking the vestibular movement, like the like the little girl who's constantly twirling in front of the mirror or is, you know, trying to jump up and down or do cartwheels constantly, how many of our kids come home and it's like they could do that for hours. Those children have, and they need to get more of that vestibular input in order to feel more calm and regulated. Right, and some of the kids, the ones who are, I would imagine even those kids get it, but the ones who are on the opposite end, they may present with like motion sickness. How many of our kids are coming home off the bus and they say that they're nauseous or in the car? Something interesting that I want to point out that a lot of people may not be aware of is the vestibular system is very closely connected to emotionality and behavioral issues. And sometimes what ends up happening is we're not even aware that some of the behaviors and issues that children are presenting with are stemming from something in this system. For example, there are some kids who are doing really, really well in school. They're functioning okay. They get on the bus and then when they come home, kids, uh, parents are telling me they're like they're off the wall, they're having such a hard time, they're not regulated. And it could just be that bus ride that made them feel so bad that they're behavioral when they get off the bus. And sometimes it doesn't even happen right away, it happens maybe a half hour later. They're fine when they get off the bus. They may even be a little bit quiet because their system is so overloaded and they don't know how to deal with those feelings so it comes out as being more hyperactive, being behavioral. And I think a lot of us as adults can can relate to that with that idea of motion sickness being connected to the vestibular system right? and how we feel when we go on roller coaster rides and we don't feel comfortable or when we go on those long rides down, you know, cross country or in the summertime on these summer trips. It's really, really hard for us to deal with those trips. Those things stay with us. But um, they they may not impact us fully, but it is something. Well, also the memory of it stays with you. So that's something like sometimes some children just having one experience would make them not want to do a similar experience because of the feeling. Because remember, this is an internal sense. You're only going to get the effect of it not being working well um, by something in your body, like that motion sickness, that nausea, that feeling of unrest. And when we talk about that, it's an internal sense. I'm just going to get into the science a little bit. The vestibular system is actually in our ears, and it's very connected. We're going to go on to the next system, the auditory system. But it's really in those canals. Remember when you were in third grade learning about those semicircular canals and the different um, fluid that's in the ear that's telling us where we are in space? That's really impacted what's going on with our ears. So ear infections and things like that can also impact our vestibular system. With that in mind, connected to the vestibular system, I'm going to go towards working on explaining more about the auditory system. This system is so critical. As we all know, when we hear well, we're able to process information and language. And the auditory system is very critical for language development for us being able to understand our our world through words, to understand meaning to everything. You know, we hear the sounds, that's one thing, and then we have to interpret the information that we hear, which is the processing. In the same way um, Evelyn spoke about the eye is seeing, and then processing what it is, the ears hear the information, the sounds, and then our brains have to process it. So there are two things to talk about in this system. First of all, children who have a sensitivity to the actual sound. Now this term is called hyperacusis. That means they have a high sensitivity to sound. And they're the kids who are hearing everything. They may be in school, in class, and they're hearing the bulb that's in the ceiling that's about to go. Or they're listening to the person outside that's drilling and that's all they hear. And that can impact their attention. Um, And we also want to think about how with these children, they're not always having attention issues. They might just be dealing with this hypersensitivity to all the sounds that are around them. I'm sure you can relate to that, like 100%. And then we also have the other part of the auditory system, which is the perception of sound. They have a hard time interpreting the information about what they're hearing. They have they hear the words, but they're not sure what the meaning is behind those words. So what impacts these children in development? A lot of these children who have difficulty with ear infections or have a lot of them at a young age will have a hard time with language development because their ears are not developing properly. They may also have minimal hearing loss. And that's something that we always recommend to parents who are concerned about attention to make sure to investigate if there is minimal hearing loss because right. that may be a sign for them having attentional issues. Yeah, sometimes we don't even know that someone has minimal hearing loss. Like even if they go to the audiologist and they, get, they don't get diagnosed with it, but sometimes there's, we have a lot of masking that's going on in our environment. There's a lot of noise that's going on. We have computers in the background. We have technology And even if a child is hearing, but is hearing at that level where they would get diagnosed with minimal hearing loss, it makes it even worse for them. So they're not really able to listen to um, the sounds. They're not interpreting the sounds properly. So they're not hearing maybe differences between a P and a Q or um, an M or an N. And that's going to affect the way they process language. And every time you say those words, they may be hearing it in a little different way so they don't get the, the way the sound of the words are, which is going to make it very hard for them, not just for speaking and for understanding language, but when you have to then bring in vision and look at the word in the book, because they've always learned it differently, or heard it, I should say, differently each time, it's going to affect their ability to process and read and understand the written words in a book, which is how here we're connecting Lay, um, vision as well as auditory issues. Sometimes the reading issues, you have to look back, is it perhaps an auditory issue that's in play over here? And imagine for these children who are learning two languages how difficult that could be. For example, they're here focused, let's say, learning on English, and then they have to learn Chinese or Hebrew or Yiddish, and those languages come in a different direction, and their visual system is being challenged and their auditory system. I understand. And the, you Go ahead. I was just going to say, let's just tie in quickly, let's it, just to show you how each system needs to work together. When I mentioned about the eye contact, that a child is not looking at you. Sometimes children, what they see you saying, actually interferes with what they're hearing. So what are they going to do? They realize that if I don't look at you, I'm going to hear a little bit better, so they avert their eye contact. So it seems like they're not paying attention, but they're actually listening and picking up the information. The minute you tell them, look at me, is the minute that they have shut down and they're looking at you, but they're not hearing you. And you know, growing up, like I remember yeah. the phrase in our generation was always when there was a parent rebuking another a child, they were always like, Look at me. Right. Don't you know, you gotta look at People me People still do it today. It, just, right. it makes you, by the way, feel better. When you feel like they're paying attention, but they're really sometimes not paying attention to you. They're there. But they're not in the moment and they're not hearing what you're saying. So it's a better idea to just allow them to avert eye contact and give them that firm discipline, but don't assume that by them looking at you, they're actually paying attention. Right. Okay, let's move on. The time, yeah. How many? We did three. We have four. Let's go on. Okay. The next system we're going to talk about is the proprioceptive system. And the proprioceptive system is a system that lets us know where we are in space. We have receptors in our joints, in our shoulders, in our elbows, in our arms, our hips, our legs that as we use them, it tells us where we are. So, for example, some of you may be hopefully sitting on your couch, relaxing with your legs curled underneath you. Some of you may be listening in the car and you're holding on to the steering wheel. Some of you may be walking on your treadmills right now. um, Right. Whatever it is that you're doing, you hopefully weren't focused on what you were doing. You were focusing on what we were saying. But the minute I said that to you, you developed an awareness of the fact that you, where you were and what you were doing. And that is what this system does. And for a lot of the children who have issues, they are the kids who are going to need what we call proprioceptive input. So they are going to be the ones that are going to be constantly moving. They're going to be twiddling their hair. They're going to be putting their fingers in their nose and their mouth. They're going to be biting their nails. They're going to be biting um, the pencil. They're going to be sucking their thumb. They're going to want to have a pacifier after the age of two years of age. They're They're going to be the ones that are going to be playing with their sixth little baby a little bit too roughly, and maybe when they need a hug, boy, do you need to give them a hug because they don't know where they are, so they need to give themselves that feeling. These are the children who may be touching themselves inappropriately, and even though you're explaining things to them, they have a hard time controlling themselves at a young age. Please know that there are developmental ages when this is totally appropriate, because they're exploring, but at the point where it's not anymore, they're showing you the need for input. And One thing to know about kids who have proprioceptive issues, you can tell them to stop it, one behavior, or one thing. If there's an issue, they're going to find another way to do it, because they need it in order to feel calm. And you know, something just in general, I think we're going to stop midpoint because there's so much information to share. In general, Children who have sensory integration issues and difficulties are good, smart children. These behaviors are a sign to us that they are not feeling comfortable in their own skin. So when, as teachers, as educators, as parents, as relatives, as neighbors, when we see children with these behaviors, if we can understand that for a moment, it will allow us to accept them a little bit easier in our functional day-to-day life and it's something that we should try and remember all the time, that they're not doing these behaviors to be bad or to get into trouble or because they have, they're trying to prove something or to be oppositional. They're doing these behaviors because of a physiological need that they were either born with or that they developed in order to compensate for underlying issues. Which is a fascinating thing because I always think how smart are these children. They're knowing what they need to do to function and to be doing what a typically developing child who may not have sensory issues is doing without having that need for those movements or those behaviors. So it's a very important point take a step back and look at what they're doing, and let's try to be understanding and figure out why are they doing it. Let's talk about how proprioception also affects handwriting and things like that. Functionally speaking, kids who have proprioceptive issues, they're going to be the ones who are going to be holding the crayon or the pencil too tightly. They're going to have a hard time with making the lines, perhaps even the directions of the lines. But what's even more important, is if you don't know where you are in space, you're going to have a very hard time relating to the other things that are around you in that space. So the, practically speaking, you may bump into things because you're not seeing it. But if you don't know where you are, you're also going to have a hard time relating to the people that are children that have issues with um, pronouns because they're not knowing me, you. These are the children that have a hard time picking up on the social issues. They have social issues because they're not they're busy with themselves. They're not able to see what it is you're telling them to do. They have issues with personal space. So... There are so many manifestations of having issues um, in this system that are going to affect the quality of their life later on. And sometimes you don't see it when they're so young. You only see these issues pop up later on, and it could stem from an origin in a deficit in the system. And, you know, the thing about proprioception that's fascinating is that it's usually connected to one of the other systems. But if you provide children with the input that they need within their joints, primarily their larger joints like their hips and their shoulders, and you allow them to do that heavy work, that yoga, that wheelbarrow, those exercises that give them a lot of input, it allows them to at least get a temporary relief. Proprioception is the last system to develop because it's really only developed once we have gravity and that's only when the baby is born. So in therapy, typically, we, we take a bottom-up approach where we work developmentally based on when they develop, but in our practice, for those therapists who are listening on the line, we would address proprioception regardless because it's such a calming and organizing right. system for these children. Remember, children have to have to survive and they have to do well, so even if you need to give them that compensation of giving them the proprioceptive input, it is something that's essential and very, very important. And if you are therapeutically treating the source of why they're having that issue, then after a while, it sort of like comes together where the need diminishes, so you don't need to give them that input anymore. And, you know, I'm not sure like if many of you are familiar with yoga poses, but if you think a lot of the yoga poses have your hands putting them together, in prayer pose, when we have isometric exercises, it's these exercises that we think of as calming and organizing because what we're doing is we're giving feedback into the internal parts of our joints. Just to give a little tidbit for anyone who wants to know how to help this system. And even adults, by the way. For adults are suffering with this, one of the recommendations for those who can't, like when parents are coming and, you know, they just want to know what to do. It's a big recommendation that they do these kinds of exercises. Well, think about adults who do well with yoga or some adults who say, you know what, I really need to get that boxing workout in order to feel calm and do well. Those are the adults who maybe, you know, may not even know, but they need that input to feel a little bit more organized. Now we're going to talk about the most exciting system, (laughs) in my opinion. For you. (laughs) It's the system that even though everybody knows the system and everyone is – and it's funny that I'm saying it, that they know it, okay, knows, whatever, (laughs) Um, corniness here, but the the system we're going to talk about that I found to be most fascinating when studying is the olfactory system. That's our sense of smell. And I just want to share with our audience tonight that this sense is the first sense that is developed in the baby. In fact, research has shown that a baby can be born and only based on the mother's scent, they will cry when placed on that mother, knowing who their mother is. Because again, my sister mentioned vision is not really developed at birth fully, but they're using this sense. This sense is created way before any of the full brain matter is created. Our olfactory bulbs are the first sense that are actually created. Now, why is it so fascinating? The sense of smell impacts children in a very significant way. Children who are impulsive, children who have difficulty with executive functioning may have a deregulated system. And this is a system that many people from parents to therapists don't really know that it's an issue. Yes, they don't really address it sometimes because you know if you see a child who's covering their ears you know that they're hypersensitive to sounds if you see a child squinting or you know flapping or looking away you know visually they're having an issue if they're a picky eater you know that there's something there and if they're touching everything you know that there might be proprioception or tactile issues The sense of smell doesn't really come to play because it doesn't annoy us so much. It just annoys our children. And they don't even know that the smells are annoying them until you may see like the impulsivity that comes out and we're not aware of it. And And it's usually not the children that are holding their nose and saying, ooh, I don't like this. It could be, but usually it's so subtle even for these children that a subtle scent can just make them go like, you know, off the wall a little bit. Sometimes it could even be the tuna fish that's sitting in someone's briefcase you know, two rows behind them. Or it could be that after lunchtime when they come back from the lunchroom, they're so much more impulsive and reactive. So what I want to mention about the olfactory sense is very connected to the prefrontal cortex. For technical terms, for the parents out there, that means our sense of just instinctive, impulsivity, doing what needs to be done. There's not a lot of thought process. It's just doing what it is that we feel in that moment. And these children are typically impulsive. Right. Something else that the olfactory sense is very connected to is our sense of memory, and I could talk about this for literally hours, which I won't, my sister showing unless, me. Unless we don't want to discuss this a little bit more, I want to let's. I want to. I know that on am we have like a lot of interest on that, but the sense of smell can impact our memory in so many ways, and it's connected to the emotions. So if a child had something that experienced when they were younger that was connected to a sense of smell, even if it, was, if it was considered a pleasant smell, but they had a bad experience while that pleasant smell was there, and may impact them later on in life. As adults, we could think about that. You walk into some stores or some, you know, foods that all of a sudden invoke, and in you, oh, that yummy feeling, you want that just from the smell itself. We have that also, and sometimes you'll have like, ooh, I don't like that smell. I remember, um, I don't know, something a food, some food that's on a food card, or something that it just has a bad smell for you and a bad memory. You remember that it's just stuff that you want to avoid. And for me, it's ginger ale. Whenever I was yeah, sick, I like that ginger was, ale. <laughs> that, was, that was that was like our special treat in our home. We were not allowed to have too much soda right. as young children. You and a good thing that it's yeah. something that you invoke as being taken care of. And right. So right. Even to this, right. even to this day, smelling ginger ale just brings back that yummy feeling. Right. So something to understand is that if your child did go through a trauma when they were young, or even if they had developmental delays and there, you had a child who had, was a picky eater, for example, and they were dealing with foods that may have triggered a bad experience during the therapy session, that may have connotated an emotion as well. So when you think of the sense of smell, think of impulsivity and also the emotional feelings that they have, which is so powerful. Okay, I'm going to stop because I can go on with this. But in, in the same vein, we're going to connect the gustatory system, which is our sense of taste. Now, just to give you a fascinating science here, there really are only five senses of taste. There are five flavors. There's sweet, there's sour, there's bitter, there's umani, and salt. Now, what gives us flavor then? Anyone? Right? (laughs) Do you remember this? Yeah, our sense of Smell. smell. Right. So when we are thinking about flavor, it's really what chemicals are being released in the back of our mouth that's entering our nasal cavity to give us a sense of smell and that's how we have a flavor profile. So children who are picky eaters and are sensitive to taste may actually have an issue with their smell. I'm going to go back to it because that's the way you would treat them. Think about children also who have a runny nose all the time and they're stuffed and they may not be smelling things appropriately, how that may also affect their feeding as well. And another thing that the gustatory system is affected by is sometimes the sensitivity of the textures, which we're going to talk about when we talk more about tactile. But in a way, if they're highly sensitive to how the food feels in their mouth and how they're processing it, they're not able to chew it well. It's connected to the proprioceptive system. If they don't have a good awareness right. of their jaw and chewing, they're not able to chew so well. And that doesn't allow them to get that full sense of eating satisfying in a satisfying way, because they don't get to break down the flavors, they don't get to also use other systems, as we're going to talk about later, which helps that satiety or that good feeling of knowing I'm eating and I'm satisfied, like you mentioned. And the last point I wanted to mention about the gastrointestinal system is just to remember, is that it has been proven in animals, and you know, in some studies that were done with um, children who were children who were um, who were not provided who are nutritionally deprived, that this sense has also a very close connection to memory. So if they have a bad experience with a certain taste or a flavor, they will have a tendency to remember that for a long time. Okay, we are heading a little long into this. Let's get to the next one. So let's briefly talk about the other systems. The last two that we have is, is the first one is the tactile system which has to do with our sense of touch. And that has to do with receptors that we have in our skin that let us know what we're feeling. So do you like the feeling of the silk? Do you like the feeling of wool? Um, And when we talk about these things, we're talking about children or adults who may be a little hypersensitive to touch as well as the different textures. So it's not the children that are touching things. A lot of people mistake touching things as something wrong in the system. It's more, that's more the proprioceptive system. It's more the inability or difficulty that you have with tolerating different textures. And the interesting thing about the system is if it's only related to that, to discriminating, having difficulty discriminating between different textures, it's a relatively simple system that we can treat. It's the easiest one, actually. But sometimes, and we'll go into that maybe when we're talking about other areas, sometimes you can have other issues. Um, Someone who maybe is a little bit more anxious or someone who's going through other emotional issues may also have issues in the system that is not just related to touch, but there are other things that are, I guess, exacerbating the symptoms that they're feeling. And it's something that can go with someone and affect quality of life and issues of intimacy later on, and things in the relationships, and we can talk about this at, you know, a little bit further if people are interested about this, but it's in that respect, then it's something that you need to take care of those underlying issues in order for that sense of touch to improve. But if it's strictly a discrimination issue that you're not tolerating texture, like you said, it's the simplest and the easiest system to address. We wanna get to questions, so we're gonna finish off the last system, which is the interoception. Now, what does this mean? This is a system that has to do with our internal self and the organs that we have within ourselves and the muscle tissue. We're talking here about the cardiovascular system. We're talking about our gastrointestinal system, how the muscles in our stomach and in our heart are connecting and relating information back to the brain. So when we spoke about sensory integration, initially we said about the environment on the outside, but there is information also coming in internally. Think about how your heart rate is, how your blood pressure is. Are you sweating? What's your adrenaline system? How many of us feel those butterflies in our stomach? That would be the interoceptive system communicating with our brain. And this is very much connected to anxiety and tendencies of panic and feeling of overwhelm, stress. Maybe exactly. Like the tendency. immune system is very connected to this as well. The parts of the brain that actually work on this are the thalamus and the reticular formation. And we're not going to get too much in detail with that, but I think all of us can relate how when we are under stress or having a heightened sense of excitement or any kind of extreme emotion, is this interoceptive system that comes into play. Now, we can control that through mindfulness and things like that, but for some of us, When there's dysfunction in the communication, we have to do much more intense therapy to get children, and even adults into a better state of mind. 100%. And maybe we'll talk about these methods another time on how to help this kind of component because I think for those who are suffering with mental health difficulties and with regulation issues, it's very important to address the system as well. So I hope that based on what we just discussed, you see the importance of every single system as how they work individually. But I think we've touched on almost every single system that we spoke about, we brought in. Different issues or symptoms or different systems and how they get affected to show you that it's not one system on its own. So you have to make sure that everything's working well together. They're there to support each other if one is not working so well, but it's very important to try to get them working well together so that children are not working so hard, that they're integrating information, because if you have sensory integration issues and you're constantly busy trying to find out where you are in space, trying to find your balance, trying to make sure that your stomach is not hurting you, what ends up happening is it takes away from your ability to learn. It takes away. And think. Right. And and they may be very smart, like you said earlier, but they're going to be working hard with their body when they should be focusing more on being able to learn, interact, be social without that much effort. And to drill a point in that it's not one system on its own. So it's not just the auditory system and just that. Because so many parents will come to us and they say, I did vision therapy or I did a listening program or, you know, I did desensitize him with a breathing program. For, for weeks and months and it's not better. Right. So, yes. You're identifying that you worked on one system, but again, they're so connected and interrelated that you need to figure out what that is as far as the full relationship and the full profile. And like my sister said, you can have a problem in one area and live your life comfortably and fine, and that's in okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the permission. But the point is, again, it's only if it's affecting your functioning. and. The the nice thing about understanding sensory integration is that if you do have a child that's quite young, you can help foster them to develop it appropriately with exposure and with understanding these systems more. And we're going to take some questions now, but if any of the information that you heard tonight, there's one area that you were like, wow, I didn't know that. I would love you to expand on that please share with us, and we'll devote more time, maybe a full hour on one system or two systems, and try and give you more information. But with that in mind, we did get a lot of emails. Right. Nice. Um, we have them we, printed out here. Let's so see if we have let's anyone let's calling in. Okay, so we're going to open up the Q&A now. Hello. And for those who have called in, and just wait your turn, we'll get to you. But let's get started with someone who sent an email in. Okay. Let's see, where is that? Paper. There go. Okay, so Ricky Hello. sent us a question. Hi. How is sensory connected to fears or anxieties in children? When is it age appropriate for kids to have fears and when does it need treatment? And then she also asked very many children have some sensory integration issues. How do I know at a young age if it's in the normal range or will it develop into a big problem as a kid gets older? Does regular OT help when they are young to prevent? issues when they get older? Great question. Yes, a lot of stuff in here actually. Okay, so I think, let, let's it backward first with the idea of, you know, many children have sensory integration issues. How do you know if it's normal in age or not? Okay. So the first thing we always tell parents when they're having this question, because you know, like we said, it's normal to be afraid of certain things. It's normal to be touching and exploring. It's normal for children to be hypersensitive when they're babies and newborns. So how do we know? So we are, when we talk about growing out of it, that term, the way we reference it in our practice is that the central nervous system needs time to kind of get developed and mature. So if you leave the American Pediatric Association's milestones or you go online on Baby Center or you ask your friends, you know, when is my baby supposed to crawl, or when are they supposed to do this or that, or when is it appropriate for them not to have a pacifier? It's okay to give a little bit of time for your child to develop a little bit more in that system. The thing that we would worry about is number one, if any of the parents have sensory integration issues, you'd want to be self aware about that and try working on that to those issues in that child earlier on. And also you want to see that it's not something It's getting translated when you stop telling them to do one of those behaviors. I would also recommend that if you do suspect that a child has or you suspect sensory issues, especially in a baby that's a little bit younger, try to expose that child to as many things that are going to help that system. So if you're going to see that your child is on the floor and doesn't like to move and they're not reaching their milestones, Put them on the floor, make sure that they're experiencing as much as they can to see that with time, even though it may be difficult, they're able to work through it. A child who's sensitive to different textures, I would tell you like with the baby, massage the baby, maybe expose them you know, on the activity mats. buy those masks that have different textures, the soft, the mushy, the hard, and see if they get acclimated to it. If you see that they don't get acclimated and they're still struggling, that that may be a red flag for you to see if you need to investigate a little bit further if there are sensory issues. And again, remember that a child who's going to have sensory issues, especially in certain systems, you are going to have some behaviors and some emotionality and other things that are going to be connected to it. And you can sometimes find that link, especially now that we've discussed some of the systems, like the vestibular system, like even your proprioceptive system, you want to see that if you're not giving them the input or you're, not, or you're giving them enough of it, they still have that need and they're still doing it. Now, another thing to just mention is sometimes it's a behavioral issue. And, you know, we could do a whole podcast on that, right. what's sensory and what's behavioral. It's important to understand where they are in that developmental um, area and social-emotional Right. Responses. And I also mentioned that part of the question was how does sensory integration affect anxiety and is there a relationship? And again, we'll delve a little bit more into that I think as the future for podcasts will be coming. But yes, there is a connection because when you have a heightened state of anxiety, then you're not going to be able to interpret information that's going to be in your environment the same way. So you won't be getting the information accurately. So, of course, it could affect those systems developing appropriately. And, you know, we mentioned at the start of the podcast that there are other components of our development like reflex integration and neurochemical development. These areas affect anxiety as well. And all these different um, integrations that we're talking about develop simultaneously. So there's that sensory integration, that reflex integration that neurochemical development that's happening all at the same time. So it's sometimes hard to isolate. Is it really just their fear of tactile? Is it their fear of noises? And maybe that there's certain reflexes that are impacting them that are not allowing them to integrate that information and are creating a heightened fear or anxiety. It's normal for a child to have separation anxiety when they're younger, but there might be at that certain point um, um, there might be too much of that feeling, and you'd want to you'd try and work on the source as well. Okay, let's see if we can do one more question. So let's see if there's any questions on the phone. Okay, I don't know how to do this, actually. Okay, you know what, why don't you get another question ready from what they emailed or Instagram? Okay. Um. All right, someone asked on an Instagram question, how to know if my kid needs ABD meds or just one sensory input work? Hmm. Okay, so that's a hard one. Um, it's a little bit what you spoke about now that you have to really determine if there's a neurochemical issue only there. Right. Or whether, what I would probably answer to that is that I would probably first give them sensory input. In terms of the areas that they're seeking, I I would need to know a little bit more information in terms of is your child moving? Is your child spacey? How are they presenting? And if you have an OT working with that child to give the child the input to see if it helps organize them and if it's long lasting. And by the way, for those of you who are wondering what that means, a lot of children who have a diagnosis or are getting services will have something called a sensory diet. It's not foods that are gonna help regulate them even though foods can definitely regulate them, we'll impact. talk about that, but um, it's mostly a set of specific exercises that are designed by an occupational therapist to regulate and calm the child. It is sometimes a bit of a band-aid, but it allows the child to get through the day, which is what we want sometimes. We don't want to have our child, even though they're, we may not be addressing the root of the issues, we want them to be able to be functioning well and throughout the day. So it's tricky to answer this question, you know, it, it is not too much information that comes up in one little box, but I would tell you that see if the sensory input is helping. If it is on a short term and you have a qualified OT working with your child, then you should assume that it's more sensory. We wouldn't jump right off the bat to thinking that it's um, ADD meds. Again, these questions now that I'm seeing them are a little bit hard to um, connect just, you know, on a one-liner. But feel free to email us more detailed ones and maybe we'll be able to address them. Again, we hope that you've gained from this tonight and learned a little bit more about the whole child and all the different components of sensory integration and how it affects them. And we hope that in some way we helped you quiet the noise. Good night, everyone.
0: We hope you enjoyed and learned something new to take with you and help your families. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at HandsOnApproaches or visit our website at www.handsonapproaches.com to learn more about this podcast's topic. If you are interested in having your questions featured on the podcast or to ask your question live, please email us at info at handsonapproaches.com. Please note that none of the information discussed on this podcast should be viewed as medical or psychological treatment. If you are concerned about your child or an adult in your life, please seek out professional help and resources. Thank you for joining our podcast. Please be sure to leave a review or comment so that we can continue providing you quality education.